0: Listen, we like to begin each new season of the year, and this is a new season, isn't it, right? September, how many parents are in the room? It's freedom season, all all the new things start again, but we like to begin by doing something that crystallizes again the purpose and vision for the church. Who are we? What is it that we're about We say, and if you've been around here long enough, you've heard it a number of times from the platform, that we're a Jesus church, that we're not in the business primarily of being a Baptist church, even though we're quite proud of that heritage. We're a church of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? How is it that this man, Jesus, took a movement that had been gaining a little bit of steam in and around ancient Israel and somehow exploded it into the entire world? Well, we know that he did three things, and it's those three things that we really want to focus on over the next three Sundays as we clarify the vision for our church and answer that question, who are we? Here's the first thing he did. He saw that this little movement that had been entrusted to little Israel, a group of God's chosen people, could now be opened up to encompass the entire world. It just wouldn't matter anymore. Jews and Gentile, slave and free, women and men, that that your pedigree, your tribe, didn't matter. That from then on, everybody would be welcome. The next thing that he did is he kind of, he redefined goodness. He, he said, you know what? Maybe there's not a hierarchy in the way that, that sometimes religious people like to imagine. That in fact, Nobody is perfect. That everybody needs a Savior. And that's who Jesus is. So everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And then here was the third thing that happened. He sent the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that? In about three weeks, we're going to spend some time reflecting on that. But, But the Holy Spirit, the manifest presence, the dynamism, and the power of the living God at work in people's lives would allow them to say, that anything is, anything is possible. So everyone's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything is possible. Now, uh, there's something real special going on next weekend, too. As you know, we celebrate with our fall festival, and you've already heard a little bit about that, and I'll say some more in a few minutes, but we also mark the anniversary of our church, and we have a, a remarkably gifted guest artist. And when I told him that he was coming, and the topic of the day was going to be nobody's perfect, I think Drew just sort of said, yeah, that's perfect for me. I'll fit right in. But you won't want to miss next Sunday. I hope you will come. I hope you'll use that as an opportunity to, to invite and welcome people. This month is going to be all about introductions. And it's a great time to introduce people to MCBC. If somebody asks, what's your church about? You can just say, listen, it's a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and yet we believe that anything is possible. This week, we're going we're gonna to focus on the first of those three things, about the church being a place where people are welcome. You know, we actually have a welcome team here. You know what they're called? Gateway, right? We have gateway and, and there are a group of people who we, we know just have that, that friendly demeanor and they're there at the door every Sunday and they're making sure hopefully that you, you don't arrive without at least seeing one smile and a warm handshake and an embrace, an embrace. But, but if you're wondering really who's on the welcome team of the church, here's my answer. If you've been here for more than let's say three weeks, you're on the welcome team right? You're on the welcome team. Uh, we want when people come, we want people to see those who have who have Jesus kind of eyes. When they make eye contact with people, see in them what God sees in them. We want to have Jesus kind of ears so that when we're listening, we're actually paying attention to what people say. And we want to one of a face that says to people, we're glad that you're here. We actually smile. We want to have mouths that communicate warmth. And and just to make sure that we're all on the same page, let me see yours, because I'm not seeing it right. Let me see your smile. <laughs> we're going to have to work on that a little bit. One of my... Very good friends. Uh, Tim, Tim McCoy talks a lot about the resting posture of our face, right? That, uh, and sometimes we, it would be good to do this. Have a look in the mirror just when your face is sitting there at ease and, and see what's looking back at you. Sometimes we are not communicating with our faces what's in our hearts. We want to have a welcoming demeanor. We want to have Jesus' kind of heart. For people. We want to honor the dignity of every person who comes. And we want to remember that they come with a story behind them. We want to have the open hands of Jesus so that we, we don't do this when we're talking to people. Right? Cell phones away when we're talking to people. Our hands are available. We want to have the kind of feet that, that, that Jesus would have. So if people ask us, they look a little bit lost and where's the washroom, where, where do the kids go. We don't just point. We take them. We go there with them. And if somebody is going to come into the row and I'm sitting here at the end and I have the prime aisle seat, do I just lean back and let them trip over my knees to get to the center? Or do I scoot down the aisle and make room for them? What do I do? I love Jesus. So I scoot or maybe I'm carnal and uh, and I'm not operating out of that sense. And so I'm just I'm planted there on the edge of my seat. Anyway, when we do these kind of things with people, it's because we want them to know what we believe is one of the primary facets of the gospel, that in God, everyone has worth and value that everyone is welcome. Why does it matter so much? Because people matter to God and they ought to matter to us, which brings us to this coming Saturday. What a tremendous opportunity to be able to put that to work. You've seen this now for, for many, many weeks. Why do we keep putting in your bulletin? It's not for you this morning. This is for you to give to somebody else. Hey, you want to check out my church, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. You'll fit right in and, uh, and anything is possible. Come on along. I'd be happy to pick you up. I'd be happy to bring you. You'll see on the tables in the narthex on the way. Where did that come from? Narthex. I've been hanging out at some traditional churches over the summer. Out in the hallway, there's a number of volunteer opportunities, and uh, and we'd love to have you there. But the primary purpose of this is to demonstrate the welcoming presence of God's people in the community. I hope you'll come. I hope you'll come, and I hope you'll come not just for yourself. I hope you'll come and plan to loiter with some intent to be there as the welcoming face and hands and feet of Jesus. Will you come? I hope you will. There's this definition of hospitality, a great New Testament writer. uh, This is the way he talks about biblical hospitality. He says hospitality is making space for somebody you don't have to make space for. That's what God does. When God was creating the earth, he was making space on the earth for people. He didn't have to. And now we're part of a movement. It's the first movement of its kind, that writer goes on to say create a community where there's no more them. It's just us and soon to be us. And it begins in kind of a pinpoint focus with a single man. It begins with Jesus. And I want to take you to one of the great stories of how this new understanding of the world emerges. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me in the Gospel of John in chapter 4. This is Jesus' story. This is the story we're going to be in for the next three weeks, so get used to it. John chapter 4. You might want to dog ear that page in your Bible. It starts at a well. This whole conversation happens in a desert well. We're going to hang out there at the well for a while. This is from the Gospel of John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 3. It says, so Jesus left Judea and went back one more time to his home region of Galilee, and in doing so, he had to go through Samaria. Listen, grab your order of service here for a second. Keep your Bibles open. Have a look on the back page. I don't normally do this, but, but in very small print there, in the bottom right corner, you'll see there's a map of Palestine in the time of Jesus. Look down in the bottom left corner, there's Judea. And then look up in the sort of center top area, in a grayed out region, that's Galilee. In between the two is Samaria. And going from Galilee to Judea, Judea, or from Judea to Galilee, the easiest way would be to go straight through Samaria. But nobody did that. Why didn't anybody do that? Because they despised each other. They were considered half-breeds. Originally, Samaritans had been Jewish people. But they'd intermarried, and now they dressed the wrong way, and they believed the wrong stuff, and they didn't worship correctly, and they actually aided Israel's enemies in wars against Israel. In fact, about a century before Jesus, the high priest in Israel, the priest, helped in a raid that destroyed the temple of the Samaritans. Not a great way for a pastor to be spending their time. But If you were a rabbi and you wanted to go from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north and you Google mapped it, you would get this bypass road that went all the way around the outside edges. Because for a rabbi, GPS means geographically protected from Samaria. We're not going there. But look what happens here. Jesus is going to go to Galilee. And he doesn't take the bypass. He says, we're going to take the Samaritan Express. We're going to go straight through Samaria. And the disciples knew instantly something is going on. There's this interesting little phrase. Let's read on. Verse 4. John says, now it's necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Now, why was it necessary? It wasn't necessary geographically. He could have gone the roundabout way. Everybody did. That phrase, it was necessary, is a phrase that's used again and again in the gospel of John when the gospel is talking about the will of God, the action of God. This is God's design. God had a divine appointment in store for Jesus in Samaria. And so they head up right through the center of that region. The disciples and people in Jesus' day. They generally divide the human race into two groups of people. There's us and there's them. With Jesus, it's going to be different. It's going to be us and soon to be one of us. It's like he he thought everybody ought to be part of the same family. So they're going to go through Samaria and they come to a well. Here's what happens next. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there and Jesus... Tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It's a very interesting statement about Jesus, isn't it? It says Jesus, remember God in flesh, was tired. Anybody ever feel tired? Anybody tired this morning? When somebody's a leader, when they pride themselves on their level of energy, they're the first ones to start. They're the last ones to quit. Speed of the leader, speed of the team, right? Right? Not so with Jesus. He actually tells his friends, I'm tired. I'm just going to camp out here by this well for a while. You guys, you go into town. You you take care of what needs to be done. This is not superhero Jesus. This is a story about a very human, retired Jesus. And yet God is going to use him in that moment of exhaustion, that moment of weakness. He's not just using Jesus' strength. He's using his vulnerability. By the way, if you ever think that you're too weak or too tired to do something for God, you're not. You're not. The place that he's sitting is by the well. So I want to talk to you for just a minute about what that means. There's this this marvelous book written by a a scholar named Robert Alter. It's called The Art of... Of biblical narrative, and what he 's really doing is talking about stories, the kind of stories they told in the ancient world and the point that he makes, and he makes it very strongly is that there, there were kinds of stories, there were settings, and whenever you saw that setting, you knew what to expect in the story, for example, if you 're a fan of the uh, of the Western. Know, in movies or in print, any Western fans here, you know, if you're, if you're in that genre of the Western, chances are you're going to meet a hero and an anti-hero, both of whom who have right arms with fast twitch muscles who somehow circumstances are going to collide to have them meeting in the middle of the street at high noon. And there's going to be a shootout. That's the Western, right? In the ancient world, there's all these different kinds of stories. One of the most popular stories was the story of the well. It was the kind of story that whenever you saw that setting, other meeting at the well, everybody knew what to expect. And here's what they expected. It's going to be a boy meets girl story. It's going to be a hooking up story. In the ancient world, they didn't have singles bars. They didn't have e-harmony. A well is where a man meets a woman. It's going to be a boy meets girl story. It happens all through the Old Testament. And all the features in those stories, you begin to see a little bit here. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is identified at the well. Isaac's a lazy guy, so he sends his family to meet her. But that's what happens. Jacob meets his wife, Rachel, at the well. Moses meets his wife, Zipporah, at the well. Everybody knows, okay, here we are at the well again. It's a boy meets girl story. But this is Jesus. It's the wrong boy, right? And, and it's a well. It feels like this is the wrong kind of story for a Messiah. And it's in Samaria. That's definitely the wrong place. They dress the wrong way. They believe the wrong stuff. And then this woman comes. And as we're going to see, this is the wrong woman. So the setting sets you up with all this anticipation, and yet the story goes in a very different direction. Let's, uh, let's go on through the story. This Samaritan woman comes to draw water. We're told it's around noontime. In the ancient world, uh, water is a scarce and it's a precious commodity. Getting water was very difficult. It was a very menial task. It was often outsourced to women. And if you had enough money, you'd have a servant do it. But here she is at high noon on her own, getting water for herself. So one thing we know about her is that she's poor, which means she's not only in the wrong tribe and the wrong religion, she's also in the wrong socioeconomic group. She has no resources to help out. We're told she comes to this well around noon. We're going to come back to that in just a second, because it's the wrong time of day to come. And Jesus says to her, verse 9, follow along. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Reading ahead a little bit, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? And then in brackets, just to make the point clear for everyone, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans it's us and them this was understood by Israelites especially rabbis it's what it means to be holy you don't contact them not only is she in the wrong tribe wrong religion wrong socioeconomic group but she's a woman It's a big deal in the ancient world right men didn't talk to women in public if you're a husband you didn't even talk to your wife in public Husbands, some of you are still like that today. Don't do that, right? If you were devout and you were Jewish, you had no contact. And for sure, if you were a single man, you would not speak up, touch, or even look directly at a woman in public. That went triple if you were a rabbi. If you were a rabbi, it was your job to stay holy, to stay pure, to stay set apart. And the quickest way to be defiled would be to come into contact with a Samaritan woman. I'll tell you, I'll tell you how, uh, how unclean they were considered. I wouldn't quote this except that I want you to understand how shocking, how surprising Jesus' behavior is. This is a rabbinic teaching. I'm not making this up. This is from Jesus' day. Samaritan women are deemed menstruants from the cradle. Any kids here? You don't know what that means. You go ask your mom or dad when you get home. I want you to understand how despised Samaritan women were considered to be. She knew no Jewish rabbi is going to have anything to do with me. There is a line between us and them. And yet Jesus keeps crossing the line. This is a really interesting dynamic, and you see it again and again in the Gospels when it comes to Jesus and their despised enemies, the Samaritans. Jesus tells one of his most famous stories about a guy who gets beaten up and thrown at the edge of the road. He says a priest who goes past, an Israelite, and he does nothing. Then there's kind of an assistant priest who travels by a few minutes later and again does nothing. And then the hero of the story ends up being a shocking. Shocking. A lot of us know this guy as the good Samaritan. Nobody in Jesus' day thought of the Samaritans as good. Another time, Jesus heals a group of ten lepers. And he tells them all, one by one, that that this is the action of God. And yet, at the end of the healing of the miracle, only one comes back, throws himself down at Jesus' feet, and says, thank you, and is led into a posture of worship. That's the Samaritan. One time, Jesus and his disciples are traveling through this Samaritan village. It's not receptive to them, understandably. And the disciples say to Jesus, hey, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Just nuke them. And Jesus, as if they really could anyway, but Jesus just turns and rebukes them. Folks, you have to understand this about the man that we follow, about this Jesus. He says there is no more line that we can't cross, no more us and them. The association with these despised people was so strong that one time Jesus' adversaries, his enemies in Israel were looking for ways to insult him. And this is the insult they came up with. This is from John chapter 8. It says, Aren't we right in saying that you are both Samaritan and demon-possessed? As if that was the two worst things they could think of to say about somebody else. Samaritan and demonic. So this woman knows that, that Jesus is not going to have anything to do with her. And yet he does. And what we read here is actually the longest conversation recorded in any of the gospels that Jesus has with a person. Here's what happens next. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. We'll talk about this at the end of the series, the spirit of God. Whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them like a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. And what you've said is quite true. Talk about an awkward moment. There it is. Folks have wondered, how did Jesus know? Maybe this is just prophetic knowledge. There's an ancient idea that goes all the way back almost to the time the story was written down that there was at the well also a group of people from the village who the minute they saw the woman coming said, be careful with this one. You don't want to be number six. But whoever it is that he knew, he knew. And Jesus has a way of doing that. We'll get to that more next week. Nobody's perfect. He knows. But here's the thing about this woman and about everybody that you know. We all have history. We, we all have a story. And it's shaped us. It's defined us. You never know what people are trailing when they come here on a Sunday morning or a Saturday for the fall festival. Everyone has a story. I don't know what she dreamed about when she was a little girl, but I guarantee you she didn't dream about cycling through five marriages. It's an interesting thing, you know, in the ancient world, Women didn't have the right to initiate divorce. We read this and we think there's something scandalous about the woman. This is not scandal about her. What it says about her is that she is the victim again and again and again of men who've said, nope, I don't want you. Nope, I don't want you. No, I don't want you. Now she's with a man who most likely won't marry her and she's just hanging by a thread. And yet Jesus treats her with dignity. Dignity. The conversation goes on. It's unbelievable, this conversation. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this very mountain. It's where the Samaritans worshipped. They didn't go to Jerusalem. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Boy, she's feisty, right? She gets into a little disagreement with Jesus. We're different, you and I. We're not the same. Jesus, though, he, he's not going to let go. He sees somebody he cares about. He goes on, verse 21, a time is coming. In fact, it's come now. Why is the time come? Because Jesus has come. Verse 23, the time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Samaritans also believed in a Messiah that had a different language for it. Jesus, his answer is so interesting. I, he says, verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He offers himself to this woman. He makes space for her at the well. This isn't a boy meets girl story. This is a Messiah meets woman's story. This is a savior meets one in need saving story. Nobody knows what to do with this. The story goes on. Verse 27. Just then the disciples returned. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why were you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman came back to the town and said to the people, come come. See this man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town. They made their way toward him. Hmm. We're going to leave the story of the woman there. Come back to it a little bit next week. But I want to talk just a little bit as we wrap things up about what Jesus sees. When he looks at someone. The disciples looked at her and they saw somebody who was wrong. Jesus looked at her and saw somebody whom God loved. Here's the thing. Being right. Puts me on the opposite side of people. I love to be right. Love puts me on the same side people Jesus would always look at people first with love of course he was committed to truth but truth in love everybody you know matters to god everybody you know needs jesus he's still calling people to himself you know there's this <laughs> there's this old tradition some of you know we 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 interweave it into our jokes and into our humor that that saint peter is the one who's there at heaven's gate keeping watch over those who day by day are making their way into the father's house that, that 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 peter is the gatekeeper but if peter is the gatekeeper somehow the apostle paul is the chief administrator he's the record keeper and one day peter is complaining to paul that it feels like there's more people in heaven than he's letting through the gate a couple days later, Paul comes running out to Peter and says, I figured out the problem. Every night, Jesus is sneaking people over the, we- over the walls. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is he's just that kind of way. Sinful people, Samaritan people, Roman people, centurions, soldiers, the poor, the short, no, <laughs> tax collectors, lame people, whatever, When Jesus is dying on a cross for crying out loud, there's one more person on the cross being crucified who cries out and says, remember me, remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus says, father, I got one more to throw over the wall. I'll tell you another reason why there's a well here in the story. And it has to do with what it means to be a Jesus hearted church, kind of church that I think we are. In Australia, they have these massive cattle ranches. I mean, thousands and thousands of acres. And they're always contending with the problem is how how do you contain the herd, right? There are two ways of doing it. You can go to the long, arduous work of trying to build and maintain a fence all the way around the circumference of the property. Or you can do as they do. You build a well. And the livestock will always cluster at the well. You can either build a fence or you can dig a well. A lot of people in our world building fences. Feels like more and more every day sometimes. You know, in Jesus' day, the rabbis would actually talk about fencing in the Torah, the Word of God. We can't be defiled by coming into contact with unclean Samaritans. And so they'd develop these elaborate rules about just how far, how many feet you would have to stand away from them to make sure that you didn't even touch them accidentally. They'd have rules about their rules. They'd put a fence around the Torah. Jesus is going to redefine goodness. What defiles people, Jesus would say, is not what touches them from the outside, but what happens to them on the inside. Jesus wouldn't be a fence builder. He was going to be a well digger. I'd come, he said, to give you water what you've been thirsting for your whole life i've come to make you a new kind of person to give you a new life so that it doesn't feel like you're parched and drying up all the time churches churches need to decide are we going to build fences and some do that what are the certain behaviors or beliefs that we can use to figure out who's not one of us who's one of them I grew up in the Baptist church. I'm so grateful for it. I, it sounds like I'm negative about it. I'm not, I love my family. It helped me in so many ways. But, but I did grow up in a kind of fence-building church where if you, if you smoked, you were on the other side of the fence, right? If you danced, you were on the other side of the fence, What if instead of a fence-building church, you were a well-digging church, a, a Jesus church, just trying relentlessly and recklessly to keep pointing people to Jesus, not trying to manufacture any, any kind of us and them adversity. We just want people to meet Jesus because we know that'll change everything. Here's the deal, and we'll, we'll wrap up. We know that everyone is welcome. I mean, I hope we do. But everyone doesn't know that. There are millions of people, literally millions of people in the GTA who might only be one invitation away from taking a step that will lead them to Jesus, but they never take the step because nobody invited them. Here's the simple phrase I want you to try. You should come to my church. Say that with me. You should come to my church. Just that. When you're talking to somebody, they're new to the area, say, hey, you should come to my church. They get a new job, and they're excited, or they lost their job, and they're traumatized. Say, hey, you should come to my church. They're having a hard time. You should come to my church. They just had a baby. You should come to my church. It's a simple deal. With that invitation in hand, Fall Festival, hey, why don't you come to my church? You know what Jesus is doing right now? He said to his friends just before he was leaving the earth, this is John 14, I'm going to my father and in my father's house there's many rooms. He's making space. He's making space for somebody and we didn't have to make space for. If it were not so, he goes on to say, "I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I'm making space. That's what Jesus does. He did it at great cost. It's free to all of us, but it came at great cost. The primary place where God went to make space for sinners, people who are not perfect, me, you, it was a cross." There's this old song. Probably none of you will know it. Rochelle, Edmund, I don't even know whether you remember this. I kind of grew up on it. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. That's true for people that you and I know and care about who are still far from Jesus. There's room. That's our Jesus. There's room. And everybody is welcome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that in a world that divides the human race up into us versus them, where there's hostility, bitterness suspicion, there's mistrust and violence and war between people, sometimes hatred between races and brokenness and families. That there's this place called the church, a Jesus church where everybody is welcome. It doesn't matter. Young, old, black, brown, white, rich, poor, foolish or wise. Thank you, God, that there's room at the cross. Thank you, God, for Jesus. That best of all possible gifts, still meets people at the well. Pray together in Jesus' name.